0: Well, hello there and welcome or welcome back. I'm Nurse Mo and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast where I teach concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. So today we're talking about a very common condition that you will see at the bedside and clinical, taking care of patients. And if you're a student, you'll see this in your textbooks, case studies, and exams. And that, my friends, is diabetes. Now, before we dive into that, I do want to take a quick minute for our listener, shout out, and this one goes out to someone who used the name ABMR3, and I believe this came through on Apple Podcasts, and they say this, I'm currently a nursing student about to start clinicals, but in an accelerated master's program, and these podcasts have been so helpful. Study tip, take notes on your professor's lecture. Find episodes on relevant topics when possible, then go back through your notes and integrate these two together. It's helped me immensely. So thank you, ABMR3, for sharing that tip and for letting us know that the podcast is helping you thrive in your accelerated master's program. Okay, so we are talking today about diabetes, and diabetes mellitus is a condition in which the body's ability to respond to insulin or produce insulin is impaired. And what this does is it results in abnormal carbohydrate metabolism and elevated blood glucose levels. So in this episode, you'll learn the basic things to know about diabetes so you can feel confident at the bedside or on nursing school exams, including your NCLEX. So let's dive in there are a few different types of diabetes. So type 1 diabetes mellitus is thought to be caused by an autoimmune reaction that destroys the insulin-producing cells of the pancreas. Remember, those are those beta cells. Individuals with type 1 diabetes are reliant on insulin about 5 to 10% of individuals with diabetes have type 1, and it generally manifests in childhood or young adulthood. And then there's type 2 diabetes. In type 2 diabetes, the pancreas doesn't produce enough insulin, or the body's ability to utilize insulin is impaired, or of course, both of these things can be going on. Most people with diabetes have type 2. And unlike type 1, it is considered preventable and reversible. And then we have latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, which goes by the, uh, I guess this is an acronym, L-A-D-A. This form of diabetes is similar to type 1, only it occurs in adulthood and generally worsens over time. You may hear this referred to as type 1.5 diabetes. And then there's gestational diabetes, which occurs in pregnant individuals who do not have a history of diabetes. We'll talk about gestational diabetes in another lesson that I promise to come back and do in the future. So let's do a quick physiology review. Blood glucose levels increase in the body for a variety of reasons. One of the most common being the intake of nutrition, mainly those carbohydrates. Other causes of blood glucose elevations include medications such as corticosteroids, stress, and infection. In normal physiology, the pancreas secretes insulin in response to elevated blood glucose levels. So, insulin is a hormone that helps the body use sugar for energy by moving glucose from the bloodstream into the cells. Think of insulin as a key. That unlocks the cell so that glucose can enter. So when insulin levels are inadequate or when the body has impaired response to insulin, the glucose can't get into the cells to provide energy and instead builds up in the bloodstream, causing hyperglycemia. So in type 1 diabetes, which is insulin-dependent diabetes, remember type 1 insulin-dependent, the pancreas does not produce insulin. This is believed to be due to that immune system attacking those beta cells. And this can be a result of genetics or environmental factors such as viruses. And then in type 2 diabetes, there is not enough insulin being released or very commonly, as I mentioned before, the cells in the body are resistant to the insulin that is present, making it more difficult for the insulin to unlock the cell so the glucose can enter. So in both types of diabetes, blood glucose not entering the cell where it can provide energy to the body and it's building up in the bloodstream causing that hyperglycemia. Over time, elevated blood glucose levels lead to a wide range of problems, including increased risk for infection, delayed wound healing, nerve damage leading to neuropathy, hypertension, foot complications that can significantly affect mobility, renal failure, cardiovascular disease, blindness, and stroke. Acute complications of diabetes include diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state. Both are life-threatening emergencies that require prompt medical intervention, and we will go into those in more detail in upcoming future episodes dedicated just to those because they're very complex. So, now that you have some background knowledge of diabetes, let's dive into it in more detail using the Straight A Nursing Latte Method. So, that first letter in the Latte Method is L for look. How does the patient look, and what are their signs and symptoms? The classic signs of diabetes are the three Ps polyuria, polydipsia, and polyphagia. So, what do those words mean? Polyuria means A lot of urine, so they're urinating a large amount of volume. Polydipsia is increased thirst, drinking a lot of water. And polyphagia means eating a lot of food. Another classic sign is weight loss. So let's talk about why these things happen. So looking at polyuria, as the amount of blood glucose in the blood exceeds what the kidneys can handle, Excess glucose is excreted in the urine. This causes an osmotic diuresis, leading to polyuria. And then polydipsia, this occurs because hyperglycemia increases that osmolarity of the blood, meaning it's more concentrated. This, along with polyuria, triggers the thirst center in the brain. And then polyphagia, which is that increased appetite eating a lot, Without an energy source in the cells, the body basically thinks it's starving, and this triggers hunger signals in the brain. And then weight loss. So without sugar to use for energy, the body breaks down fat and protein, which leads to weight loss. Now, other things you may notice about a patient with diabetes include fatigue, blurred vision, wounds that don't heal numbness and tingling in the hands and feet due to peripheral neuropathy, which can be quite painful. They may have malformed feet due to a condition called charcoal foot or charcoal, and acanthosis nigricans, which is dark, dry patches of skin, usually located at the neck, the groin, and the armpits. And then just very briefly, an individual who has gone on to have that complication of diabetic ketoacidosis would have decreased level of consciousness, fruity smelling breath, and rapid deep breathing called Kussmaul respirations. And I promise I'll come back and do a whole episode on diabetic ketoacidosis. Now note that the signs and symptoms of diabetes are not just related to hyperglycemia hypoglycemia can occur as well. So common signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia include shakiness, irritability or confusion, sweating, palpitations, headache, dizziness, and hunger. So the next letter in the LATTE method is an A, and this stands for assessment. How are we going to assess our patient? So the key assessment for a patient with diabetes is Measuring that blood glucose level. This is most often done using a finger stick blood glucose test, but can also be measured from a lab draw. We'll talk about that in more details when we get into the specific tests and what the lab values mean. Some other key assessments for a patient with diabetes include monitoring for signs of hypoglycemia, assessing skin for non healing wounds, especially on the feet. So sometimes a patient with diabetes, because they have that peripheral neuropathy, they lose sensation in the feet. And if there's even just a small pebble, for instance, in their shoe, they wouldn't necessarily feel that. Someone with normal sensation in their feet feels it right away, takes their shoe off, gets the pebble out, goes on about their day. But somebody with peripheral neuropathy, secondary to diabetes, wouldn't necessarily feel that pebble and they would walk on it all day long. So the pressure from that pebble in their shoe combined with skin that does not heal well, that has impaired skin integrity, sets them up to have these really difficult non-healing wounds and the feet are a common place for that. You want to assess for numbness or tingling associated with peripheral neuropathy and monitor their intake and output, especially if their renal function is impaired. And then any complications that they have specifically secondary to their diabetes, of course, you're going to be assessing each patient for those things as well. The next letter in the Latte Method is a T, and this is for tests. So what tests are utilized to evaluate an individual with diabetes? So that main test utilized is the evaluation of their blood glucose level, and there are several different types of tests. So the first one is going to be a fasting blood glucose. So this test measures the glucose level after a period of not eating, and typically the fast is overnight a fasting blood glucose less than or equal to 99 milligrams per deciliter is considered normal. If the patient has a level between 100 and 125, this is considered pre-diabetes, and a level above 125 milligrams per deciliter is considered to be diabetes. So again, a fasting blood glucose less than or equal to 99, that's normal. 100 to 125 is pre-diabetes, and a level above 125 is considered diabetes. And then the next type is the random blood glucose. This test measures the glucose level at a random time, not related to meal times or fasting. A level above 200 milligrams per deciliter is considered diagnostic for diabetes. And then we have the glucose tolerance test. So this test measures your blood glucose level after ingesting a specific amount of glucose. So the individual ingests the glucose and then has their blood sugar conducted one hour, two hours, and maybe also three hours later. So if after that two-hour mark, the blood glucose is below 140 milligrams per deciliter, this is considered a normal result. If it's between 140 to 199 at that two-hour mark after ingesting the glucose, this is considered pre-diabetes, and anything at 200 milligrams per deciliter and above is considered diabetes. So that's the glucose tolerance test. And then, of course, we're also testing before meals. If we have a patient who has diabetes, we're going to be checking their blood sugar before their meals and at bedtime. That's A-C and HS. AC means before meals. That's your medical timing abbreviation that means before meals, A-C. And H-S means hour of sleep or, again, at bedtime. Sometimes the MD may order a 2 a.m. check to prevent nocturnal hypoglycemia. And then other patients will get their blood sugar measured every four hours. So if you have a patient who's on continuous tube feeding, Or a patient who's maybe on TPN or NPO for an extended period of time, then we check their blood sugar around the clock every four hours. That's a very common standard. And then, of course, if they have a complication like diabetic ketoacidosis, for example, that's going to be much more intense evaluation of their blood sugar. A patient on an insulin infusion with diabetic ketoacidosis is going to have their blood sugar checked much more often, such as hourly. So those are the key kind of blood glucose tests utilized. And then there's also something called the HbA1c. And this looks at the average blood glucose over the past three months. A normal result is less than 5.7%. And then prediabetes is a result of 5.7 to 6.4%. And a result of 6.5% or higher is considered diabetes. So looking at the HbA1c, and you may just often hear this called the A1c for shorthand, anything below 5.7 is normal, prediabetes is 5.7 to 6.4, and 6.5 and higher is diabetes.
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
0: And then, of course, if the patient has a specific complication from their diabetes, they will get additional evaluation for those things. If they, for example, have problems with their vision, they will get vision testing. If they have issues with their kidneys, they will be getting labs to look at their kidney function, etc. So the next letter in the LATTE method is another T, and that stands for treatments. How do we treat somebody who has diabetes? So type 1 diabetes is treated with insulin. And type 2 diabetes is treated with insulin, non-insulin anti-diabetic medications, and lifestyle changes. So insulin therapy is that mainstay of diabetes treatment. It involves various types of insulin and treatment plans vary from patient to patient. So one way the patient may get insulin is with sliding scale insulin. So with sliding scale insulin, the dose is dependent upon the blood glucose level. You may also hear this called correctional insulin. So you measure the patient's blood glucose and then you look at your orders and they're going to get different amounts of insulin depending on what their blood glucose level was. It's a sliding scale. Next is nutritional insulin. Some patients will get a dose of insulin with each meal, which is calculated based off how many carbohydrates are in the meal. This is their nutritional dose. And then we have basal insulin. This type of insulin provides steady, continuous blood glucose control. A lot of times, these injections are given once per day. And then we have IV insulin. In severe cases, the patient may need a continuous insulin infusion. So let's talk a bit about insulin. Insulin is characterized by how quickly it takes effect. So rapid acting insulin takes effect within 10 to 15 minutes and is typically administered just prior to eating. Examples of rapid insulin are insulin Lispro, which is Humalog, and insulin Aspart, which is Novolog. And then we have short-acting insulin, which has an onset of 30 to 60 minutes and is often used in continuous IV infusions. An example of a short-acting insulin is humulin R, or what we often just call regular insulin. And then there's intermediate insulins. These are used once or twice a day and are combination mixtures of insulin which contain protamine. And protamine is an ingredient that causes the medication to have a longer lasting effect than a rapid or short acting insulin. So the protamine is what gives intermediate insulins their cloudy appearance. So while you can mix intermediate insulin, with a more rapid insulin, you have to draw them up in a very specific way, and this is very important. So what you do is you draw up the shorter-acting insulin first so that you don't accidentally inject protamine into the short-acting insulin vial. If you injected protamine into the short-acting insulin vial, this would affect its availability, right? Because protamine is what gives the insulin a longer lasting effect. You may hear this referred to as clear before cloudy. And that's because shorter acting insulins are clear and the intermediate one with the protamine is cloudy. So draw up clear before cloudy. Examples of intermediate insulins are humulin N, and Novolin-N. You may hear these simply referred to as NPH insulins. And then combination insulin is a mixture of a shorter and intermediate acting insulin. These are named by the percentage of each type of insulin. For example, Humulin-7030 has 70% intermediate insulin and 30% short-acting insulin. And then there are basal insulins. These take effect in about an hour and have no peak. They provide steady blood glucose control for up to 42 hours, depending on which one you're using. Examples of basal insulin are insulin glargine, which goes by the brand name Lantus, and insulin degludac, which goes by the brand name Traceba. Now, there are also quite a few non-insulin PO and injectable medications, which I discuss in another episode, and that is episode 115. So if you want to dive into this a bit more, go and check out episode 115. One very common medication that is used as a PO medication for the treatment of type 2 diabetes is metformin. Metformin works by decreasing gluconeogenesis and making skeletal muscle tissue more sensitive to insulin. Kind of cool, right? Now, a common adverse effect with metformin is GI upset, though it can also cause weight loss, which is considered a desirable effect in most individuals. A key thing to know about metformin is that it is not compatible with IV contrast and will be held for 48 hours after contrast is used in order to prevent serious renal damage. Other treatments for diabetes include nutrition, exquisite foot care, the treatment of hypoglycemia, and lifestyle modifications. So let's dive into these. Looking at nutrition, the main components of a diabetic diet are to avoid added sugars, eat regular meals, and keep carbohydrate counts consistent. In the clinical setting, this is typically a 60-gram carbohydrate meal. The American Diabetes Association recommends the diabetes plate method, where half the plate is non-starchy vegetables, a quarter of the plate is complex carbohydrate foods, and a quarter of the plate is dedicated to protein foods. Okay, so that's nutrition. And then we have exquisite foot care. So this involves washing the feet daily and drying them thoroughly, especially between the toes. Nail care should be conducted after bathing or showering. When the nails are softest, because we don't want to risk cutting the individual, and we want to make that process really easy, so soft nails, easier to cut, less chance of cutting the skin, and often patients are advised to just use a nail file, since clippers, again, can cut the skin and cause a difficult-to-treat wound. If the patient is trimming their nails, they are to be cut straight across to help, again, reduce the risk of cuts. It's also important to avoid applying lotion between the toes where it could cause skin breakdown. And then treatment of hypoglycemia. Patients with diabetes and especially those taking insulin are at high risk for hypoglycemia. A standard treatment protocol is to provide a form of glucose when the blood sugar is 70 or less. If the patient can swallow safely, this is often in the form of 15 grams carbohydrate, such as 4 ounces of juice. Now, if the patient cannot swallow, then 50% dextrose is administered IV or glucagon is administered sub-Q or IM. In all cases, when you treat hypoglycemia, you're going to check the blood sugar again in 15 minutes and continue treatment as needed. And then there are lifestyle modifications. Though lifestyle modifications cannot reverse type 1 diabetes, they can help to prevent large spikes in blood sugar and help prevent complications. In patients with type 2 diabetes, lifestyle modifications can lessen the severity of the disease, reduce dependence on insulin, and in some cases, even reverse the condition. Patients with diabetes are encouraged to maintain a healthy weight, Get regular exercise, eat a balanced diet, such as that ADA diabetic plate method, the American Diabetes Association's diabetic plate method, manage their cholesterol levels, stop smoking, limit alcohol intake, manage stress, and get regular checkups to monitor for potential complications, such as heart disease, renal disease problems with their feet, and diabetic retinopathy. And then the final letter in the latte method is E for education. How do we educate our patient with diabetes? So there's a lot of teaching for patients with diabetes, which is why many hospitals have dedicated diabetes educators. There's a lot to cover. Some key things to teach are how and when to measure blood glucose levels how to draw up the correct dose of insulin. If they're using a vial, they're drawing it up. If they're using an insulin pen, they need to know how to dial in that correct dose. They also need to know how to recognize and manage hypoglycemia. They should understand proper nutrition, again, such as that diabetic plate method that is supported and proposed by the American Diabetes Association. They also need to know good diabetes foot care, which is proper foot hygiene. Avoiding going barefoot or wearing sandals. They should wear shoes with socks, and those socks should be clean and dry at all times. You want to teach your patient to always check their shoes for debris before putting them on. We don't want them to put their shoes on, and they have something in there, a little pebble, a twig, whatever, and walk around on that all day that could be very bad for their feet, and to get regular foot exams. You also want to teach your patient when to seek medical care, such as if they're showing signs of diabetic ketoacidosis, which I promise we'll talk about in an upcoming episode. You would want them to seek care if they have a wound that won't heal or a new wound, especially on the foot if they have any changes in vision, or any other signs of a complication. And they also need to know how to manage their blood glucose when they are ill. This is called sick day protocol. So for a sick day protocol, you're teaching your patient to check their blood sugar more frequently. This will typically be every two to four hours. They should continue taking their insulin for elevated blood sugar Even if they're vomiting or not eating, the stress of the illness causes blood sugar levels to rise. They need to stay hydrated. And if they're unable to eat solid foods, they should include fluids that contain carbohydrates such as fruit juice or tea with honey. They'll need to check urine for ketones regularly, which would be present in ketoacidosis. And then that other key sign of diabetic ketoacidosis is rapid deep breathing called Kussmaul respirations. And the patient should be taught to seek medical care if they are unable to take their insulin, if blood sugars remain elevated despite insulin therapy, or if they're showing signs of dehydration or ketoacidosis. And then another thing I like to include when I'm thinking about a patient plan of care is the evaluation. So how would you evaluate the effectiveness of your interventions? So if the patient's hyperglycemic, the goal is a normal blood glucose level. That's how you would tell that your intervention was successful. Other indicators that interventions have been effective could be things like the patient is free of diabetes complications or free from worsening complications. Another sign that your interventions have been effective might be the patient stating an understanding of how and when to take medications. They're understanding your teaching. And another one maybe would be a normal HbA1c. So there you have it, your quick guide to diabetes. I hope this was helpful to you. And if you found it helpful, please consider subscribing to the show, leaving us a rating, leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get this podcast. It really helps more nurses and nursing students find the podcast. So in a way, you're helping others too. So I will see you back here next week. We are diving into cardiomyopathy next week. So I'll see you back here for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness the world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.